Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 10. Miss Sharp Begins to Make Friends It now became Rebecca's duty to make herself agreeable to the Crawleys and to gain their confidence. If there was some selfishness in this, well, who can blame her? I am alone in the world, she thought, while that little pink-faced chit Amelia, with not half my sense, has ten thousand pounds, poor Rebecca, and my figure is far better than hers, has only herself and her own wits to trust to. Well, let us see if my wits can provide me with an honourable maintenance, and some day I will show Miss Amelia my real superiority. Oh, not that I dislike poor Amelia. Who can dislike such a harmless creature? Only it will be a fine day when I can take my place above her in the world. Thus our little romantic friend formed visions of the future. We should not be scandalized that, in all her castles in the air, a husband was the main inhabitant. Of what else have young ladies to think but husbands? Of what else do their dear mamas think? I must be my own mamma said Rebecca, with a tingling consciousness of defeat, as she thought of Joss Sedley. So she wisely determined to make her position at Queen's Crawley comfortable and secure, and resolved to make friends of everyone who could affect her comfort. As my Lady Crawley was not one of these people, and was moreover so indolent and void of character as to be of no consequence, Rebecca soon found that she need not cultivate her goodwill. She used to talk to her pupils about their poor mamma, and though she treated that lady with every show of respect, it was to the rest of the family that she wisely directed her attentions. With the young people, her method was pretty simple. She did not pester their young brains with too much learning, but let them have their own way in educating themselves. The eldest was rather fond of books, and as there were in the old library at Queen's Crawley many works of light literature in French and English, which nobody else read, Rebecca could agreeably impart a great deal of instruction to Miss Rose Crawley. She and Miss Rose thus read together many delightful French and English works, among them those of the learned Dr. Smollett, the ingenious Mr. Henry Fielding, and the universal Monsieur de Voltaire. Once, when Mr. Crawley asked what the young people were reading, the governess replied, Smollett. Oh, Smollett, said Mr. Crawley quite satisfied. His history is dull, but not so dangerous as that of Mr. Hume. Is it history you are reading? Yes, said Miss Rose, without adding that it was the history of Mr. Humphrey Clinker. On another occasion, he was rather scandalized at finding her with a book of French plays. But when the governess said that it was for the purpose of learning French idiom, well, he was content.' 
Mr. Crawley was exceedingly proud of his own skill in French, and pleased with the compliments which the governess continually paid him upon it. Miss Violet's tastes were more boisterous than her sister's. She knew the hidden spots where the hens laid their eggs. She could climb a tree to rob nests, and loved to ride the young colts. She was the favorite of her father and the stableman, and the darling and terror of the cook, for she discovered the haunts of the jam pots. She and her sister were engaged in constant battles. If Miss Sharp discovered any of her little crimes, she merely promised not to tell. If Miss Violet would be a good girl and love her governess, with Mister Crawley, Miss Sharp was respectful and obedient. She used to consult him on passages of French which she could not understand, though her mother was a Frenchwoman, and she was often affected even to tears by his discourses of an evening, and would say, "Oh." Thank you, sir," with a sigh, and look up to heaven. How Miss Sharp is awakened by my words," he would reflect. "When not one of the people here is touched, I am too delicate for them, but she understands my style. Well, her mother was a Montmorency. Indeed, it was from this famous family, it seemed, that Miss Sharp was descended. Of course, she did not say that her mother had been on the stage. The French Revolution had plunged many noble families into poverty. She had several stories about her ancestors before long, some of which Mister Crawley happened to find in Dozier's dictionary on the library, which strengthened his belief in their truth. Are we to suppose from this that Mister Crawley was interested in her? No, only in a friendly way. Have we not stated that he was attached to Lady Jane Sheepshanks? He reprimanded Rebecca once or twice about playing at backgammon with Sir Pitt, saying that it was a godless amusement. But Miss Sharp said her dear mother used often to play it with the old Count de Trictrac and the venerable Abbe de Cornet. But it was not only by playing at backgammon with the baronet that the little governess made herself agreeable to her employer. She found many ways of being useful to him. She patiently read over all his law papers. She volunteered to copy his letters and adroitly corrected their spelling. She became interested in everything about the estate, the farm, the garden, and the stables. And the baronet began to take his after-breakfast walk with her and the children, of course, when she would give her advice about trees which were to be lopped, garden beds to be dug, and crops to be cut. Before she had been a year at Queen's Crawley, she had quite won the baronet's confidence. And the conversation at the dinner table, which before used to be held between him and Mister Horrocks the butler, was now between Sir Pitt and Miss Sharp. She was almost mistress of the house when Mister Crawley was absent, but behaved so modestly so as not to offend the servants. She was quite a different person from the haughty, dissatisfied little girl whom we have known previously, and this change of temper showed great prudence. A sincere desire of amendment, or at any rate, great moral courage on her part. Our readers will recollect that though young in years, our heroine was old in experience and a very clever woman. 
The elder and younger son of the house were never at home together. They hated each other cordially. Indeed, Rawdon Crawley, the dragoon, had a great contempt for the house altogether, and seldom came there except when his aunt paid her annual visit. This old lady possessed seventy thousand pounds, and had almost adopted Rawdon. She despised her elder nephew as a milksop, and in return he stated that her soul was irretrievably lost, and that his brother's was no better. She is a vain and godless woman of the world, Mr. Crawley would say. When she came to stay, he had to give up his prayers. As his father said, she wouldn't stand the preachifying. Old Miss Crawley was certainly a reprobate. She had a snug little house in Park Lane. She ate and drank a great deal too much during the season in London, and went to Harrogate or Cheltenham for the summer. She had been a beauty in her day, she said, and had been in France, and loved French novels, French cookery, and French wines. She read Voltaire and Rousseau, talked very lightly about divorce, and most energetically of the rights of women. This worthy old lady took a fancy to Rawdon Crawley when a boy, sent him to Cambridge, and when the young man was asked by the university to quit after two years, she bought him his commission in the lifeguards. The young officer was a celebrated blood or dandy about town. Boxing, rat-hunting, the fives court, and four-in-hand driving were then the fashion, and he was an adept in all of these. And though he belonged to the household troops— who did not go to battle. Rawdon Crawley had already fought three bloody duels in which he gave proof of his contempt for death. Silly, romantic Miss Crawley, far from being horrified at the courage of her favorite, used to pay his debts after his duels, and would not listen to a word that was whispered against him. He will sow his wild oats, she would say, and is worth far more than that puling hypocrite of a brother of his. Chapter 11 Arcadian Simplicity Besides these honest folks at the hall, we must introduce the reader to their relatives at the rectory, Bute Crawley and his wife. The Reverend Bute Crawley was a tall, stately, jolly man, far more popular than the baronet, his brother. At college he rowed in the Christchurch boat and had boxed, and he carried these tastes into private life. There was not a fight within twenty miles at which he was not present, nor a race, a regatta, a ball, or a dinner in the whole county, but he found means to attend it. He had a fine voice and sang well and heartily. He rowed in the hunt and was one of the best fishermen in the county. Mrs. Crawley, the rector's wife, was a smart little body who wrote his sermons. She ruled absolutely within the rectory, wisely giving her husband full liberty without. He was welcome to come and go, and dine out as many days as he liked, for Mrs. Crawley was a saving woman. She was the daughter of the late Lieutenant Colonel Hector McTavish, and she and her mother won Butte at Harrogate. Ever since marrying him, she had been a prudent and thrifty wife. In spite of her care, however, he was always in debt. It took him ten years to pay off his college bills. Then, when he was just clear of them, he gave odds of a hundred to one against Kangaroo, 
who won the Derby. The rector was obliged to take up the money at ruinous interest and had been struggling ever since. His sister helped him with a hundred pounds now and then, but of course his great hope was in her death, when, hang it, he would say, Matilda must leave me half her money. So the baronet and his brother had every reason for disagreement. Young Pitt not only did not hunt, but set up a Quaker meeting-house under his uncle's nose. Rawdon, it was known, was to inherit the bulk of Miss Crawley's property. Speculations in life and death make brothers very loving towards each other in Vanity Fair. Rebecca's establishment at Queen's Crawley did not go unnoticed by Mrs. Butte Crawley. Mrs. Butte, who knew how many days the sirloin of beef lasted at the hall, how much linen was got ready at the great wash, how many peaches were on the south wall. Mrs. Butte could not pass over the governess without making every inquiry about her. There was always a good glass of ale in the refectory kitchen for the hall servants, whose usual drink was very weak, and through these channels each family was perfectly well acquainted with the doings of the other. Very soon after her arrival, Rebecca began to take a regular place in the servants' bulletins from the hall. To start with, the black pork was killed, salted the sides, leg of pork for dinner, Mr. Cramp from Mudbury over with Sir Pitt. Mr. Pitt at meeting, my lady, as usual, the young ladies with the governess. Then the report came. The new governess be a rare manager. Sir Pitt be very sweet on her. Mr. Crawley, too. He be reading tracts to her. What an abandoned wretch, said eager, active Mrs. Butte Crawley. Finally, the reports were that the governess had come round everybody, wrote Sir Pitt's letters, did his business, and had the upper hand of the whole house, my lady, Mr. Crawley, and all. Thus, Mrs. Butte spied out everything that took place in the enemy's camp, and a great deal besides. Mrs. Butte Crawley to Miss Pinkerton, the mole, Chiswick. "'My dear madam, although it is many years since I profited by your delightful instructions, yet I have ever retained the fondest regard for Miss Pinkerton and dear Chiswick. I hope your health is good. The world cannot afford to lose Miss Pinkerton for many, many years.' When my friend, Lady Fuddleston, mentioned that her dear girls required an instructress, who, I exclaimed, can we consult but the excellent Miss Pinkerton? Have you, dear madam, any ladies on your list whose services might be available to my friend? I assure you she will take no governess but of your choosing. My dear husband is pleased to say that he likes everything which comes from Miss Pinkerton's school. How I wish I could present him and my beloved girls to the friend of my youth, admired of the great lexicographer. If you ever travel into Hampshire, we hope you will adorn a rural rectory with your presence. Tis the humble but happy home of your affectionate Martha Crawley. P.S. 
Mr. Crawley's brother, the baronet, with whom we are uh, not, alas, upon terms of brotherly unity, has a governess for his little girls. Miss Sharp, who, I am told, had the good fortune to be educated at Chiswick. As I have the tenderest interest in my dearest little nieces, and as I long to be attentive to any pupil of yours, do, my dear Miss Pinkerton, tell me the history of this young lady, whom for your sake I am most anxious to befriend. M.C. Miss Pinkerton to Mrs. Bute Crawley. Dear madam, I have the honour to acknowledge your letter. Tis most gratifying to recognise in the amiable Mrs. Bute Crawley, my excellent pupil of former years, the accomplished Miss Martha McTavish. What pleasure it would give me if your beloved young daughters had need of my superintendence. Presenting my respectful compliments to Lady Fuddleston, I have the honour to introduce to her ladyship my two friends, Miss Tuffin and Miss Hawkey. Either of these young ladies is perfectly qualified to instruct in Greek, Latin, and the rudiments of Hebrew, in mathematics and history, in Spanish, French, Italian, and geography, in music, dancing, the elements of natural sciences, and the use of the globes. Miss Tiffin, who was daughter of the late Reverend Thomas, can also instruct in the Syriac language and elements of constitutional law. But as she is only eighteen years of age and of exceedingly pleasing appearance, perhaps this young lady may be objectionable in Sir Huddleston Fuddleston's family. Miss Letitia Hawkey, on the other hand, is not personally well-favoured. She is twenty-nine, her face is much pitted with the smallpox, and she has a halting gait and a trifling squint. Both ladies are endowed with every moral and religious virtue. With my respects to the Reverend Bute Crawley, I have the honour to be your most faithful and obedient servant, Barbara Pinkerton." P.S. Miss Sharp, whom you mention as governess to Sir Pitt Crawley, was a pupil of mine, and I have nothing to say in her disfavour. Though her appearance is disagreeable, we cannot control the operations of nature, and though her parents were disreputable, her father being a painter, several times bankrupt, and her mother, as I have since learned, with horror, a dancer at the opera, yet her talents are considerable, and I cannot regret that I received her out of charity. My dread is, lest the principles of the mother— whom I was told was a French countess, should prove to be hereditary in the unhappy young woman whom I took as an outcast. But her principles have hitherto been correct, I believe, and I am sure nothing will occur to injure them in the refined circle of Sir Pitt Crawley. Miss Rebecca Sharp to Miss Amelia Sedley I have not written to my beloved Amelia for these many weeks, for what news was there to tell of Humdrum Hall, as I have christened it, and what do you care whether the turnip crop is good or bad, or whether the fat pig weighed thirteen stone or fourteen? Every day is like its neighbour. 
Before breakfast, a walk with Sir Pitt. After breakfast, studies in the schoolroom. After the schoolroom, reading and writing about lawyers, leases, coal mines, and canals with Sir Pitt, whose secretary I am become. After dinner, there are Mr. Crawley's discourses on the baronet's backgammon, while my lady looks placidly on. She has become more interesting lately by being ill, which has brought a new visitor to the hall, a young doctor. Dr. Glauber gave a certain friend of yours to understand that, if she chose to be Mrs. Glauber, she was welcome to ornament the surgery. <laughs> well, I rebuffed him, as if I was born to be a country surgeon's wife. Sir Pitt applauded my resolution. He would be sorry to lose his little secretary, I think, and I believe the old wretch likes me as much as he can like anyone. <laughs> Marry a country doctor after... No, no, I cannot so soon forget old associations, about which I will talk no more. Let us return to Humdrum Hall. It is Humdrum Hall no longer. "'Miss Crawley has arrived with her fat horses, fat servants, and fat spaniel. "'The great, rich Miss Crawley, with seventy thousand pounds, "'whom, or rather which, her two brothers adore. "'She looks very apoplectic, the dear soul. "'No wonder her brothers are anxious about her. "'You should see them struggling to settle her cushions or to hand her coffee. "'When she comes to stay,' Our hall is thrown open. We have dinner parties and drink claret and champagne as if we were accustomed to it every day. We have wax candles in the schoolroom and fires to warm ourselves. My pupils leave off their thick shoes and tight old tartan pelisses and wear silk stockings and muslin frocks as fashionable baronets' daughters should. Miss Crawley and her seventy thousand pounds have an admirable effect on the two brothers, the baronet and the rector, who hate each other all the year round, but become quite loving at Christmas. When Miss Crawley arrives, there is no quarrelling. They talk in the most affable manner, and indeed Miss Crawley vows that she will leave her money elsewhere if they offend her. Our sermon books are shut when Miss Crawley arrives, and young Mr. Pitt, whom she hates, has gone to town. On the other hand, Captain Rawdon Crawley has appeared, and I suppose you will like to know what sort of a person he is. Well, he is a very large young dandy. He is six feet high, and speaks with a loud voice, and swears a great deal, and orders about the servants, who all adore him nevertheless, for he is very generous with his money. Last week the gamekeepers almost killed a bailiff and his man who came down from London to arrest the captain for debt, and who were found lurking about the park wall. The captain has a hearty contempt for his father, and calls him an old snob, a chawbacon, and other pretty names. He has a dreadful reputation among the ladies. Shall I tell you a compliment that the captain paid me? One evening we actually had a dance. There was Sir Huddleston Fuddleston and his family, Sir Giles Wapshot and his young ladies, and many more. Well, I heard him say, "'By Jove, she's a neat little filly, <laughs> meaning your humble servant. "'And he danced two country dances with me. 
He says the country girls are bores, and indeed I don't think he is far wrong. You should see the contempt with which they look down on poor me. When they dance, I sit and play the piano, very demurely. But the other night, when he saw me playing, he swore that I was the best dancer in the room, and that he would have the fiddlers from Mudbury. I'll play a country dance, said Mrs. Bute Crawley, very readily. She is a little old woman in a crooked turban. And after the captain and your poor little Rebecca had performed a dance together, do you know she actually complimented me upon my steps? The proud Mrs. Bute Crawley, first cousin to the Earl of Tiptoff. She has taken a great fancy to me. My dear Miss Sharp, she says, why not bring your girls to the rectory? Their cousins will be so happy to see them. I see through her schemes. She hopes to get a piano teacher for her children. But I shall go and make myself agreeable. Is it not a poor governess's duty, who has not a friend in the world? The rector's wife paid me a score of compliments about my pupil's progress, and thought, no doubt, to touch my heart. <laughs> poor, simple country soul. As if I cared a fig about my pupil's. Your India muslin and your pink silk, dearest Amelia, are said to become me very well. They are a good deal worn now, but you know, we poor girls can't afford new things. Happy you, who have but to drive to St. James Street and whose mother will give you anything you ask. <laughs> Farewell, dearest girl, your affectionate Rebecca. When Mrs. Bute Crawley had got the promise of a visit from Miss Sharp, she induced the all-powerful Miss Crawley to ask for Sir Pitt's permission, and the good-natured old lady, who loved to be gay and to see everyone happy around her, was quite charmed and ready to establish a reconciliation between her two brothers. It was therefore agreed that the young people of both families should visit each other frequently and the friendship lasted as long as the jovial old lady was there to keep the peace. "'Why did you ask that scoundrel, Rawdon Crawley, to dine?' said the rector to his lady as they walked back across the park. "'I don't want the fellow. He's a gambler, a drunk, and a profligate in every way. He shot a man in a duel, he's head over ears in debt, and he's robbed us of the best part of Miss Crawley's fortune.' She has him down in her will for fifty thousand. I think she's going, said the rector's wife. She was very red in the face when we left dinner. I was obliged to unlace her stays. She drank seven glasses of champagne, said the reverend, and filthy champagne it is, too, that my brother poisons us with. But you women never know what's what. We know nothing, said Mrs. Bute Crawley. She drank cherry brandy after dinner continued his reverence, and curacao with her coffee. Flesh and blood won't bear it. I lay five to two, Matilda drops in a year. Thinking about his debts and his son Jim at college and Frank at Woolwich and the four girls, who were no beauties, poor things, and would not have a penny but what they got from the aunt's legacy, the rector and his lady walked on for a while. Pitt can't be such an infernal villain as to sell the reversion of the living, continued Mr. Crawley, after a pause. Sir Pitt will do anything, said the rector's wife. 
We must get Miss Crawley to make him promise it to James. Pitt will promise anything, replied the brother. He promised he'd pay my college bills. He promised he'd build the new wing to the rectory. He promised he'd let me have the six-acre meadow, and much he kept his promises. And it's to this man's son, this scoundrel, gambler, swindler, murderer of a Rawdon Crawley, that Matilda leaves most of her money. By Jove, it's unchristian. Hush, my dearest love, we're in Sir Pitt's grounds. I say he has got every vice, Mrs. Crawley. Didn't he shoot Captain Marker? Didn't he rob young Lord Dovedale at the cocoa tree? You know he did. And you ask this villain into your house? Continued the exasperated rector. Bute Crawley, you are a fool, said his wife scornfully. Well, Martha, fool or not, and I don't say I'm as clever as you are, but I won't meet Rawdon Crawley, that's flat. I'll go over to Huddleston, that I will, and see his black greyhound, but I won't meet that beast, Rawdon Crawley. Mr. Crawley, you are intoxicated as usual, replied his wife. The next morning, when the rector woke, she reminded him of his promise to visit Sir Huddleston Fuddlestone on Saturday, and it was agreed that he might gallop back in time for church on Sunday morning. The heiress Miss Crawley had not been long at the hall before Rebecca's fascinations had won her good-natured heart. Taking her usual drive one day, she ordered, "'My little governess!' to accompany her to Mudbury." Before they had returned, Rebecca had made a conquest of her, having made her laugh four times and amused her during the whole journey. "'Not let Miss Sharp dine at table,' said she to Sir Pitt, who had arranged a dinner for all the neighbouring baronets. "'I insist upon Miss Sharp appearing, while she's the only person fit to talk to in the county.' Of course, after such an order as this, Miss Sharp received commands to dine with the illustrious company and when Sir Huddleston had, with great pomp, handed Miss Crawley in to dinner, and was preparing to take his place by her side, the old lady cried out in a shrill voice, "'Becky Sharp! Come and sit by me and amuse me, and let Sir Huddleston sit by Lady Wapshot!' When the parties were over, and the carriages had rolled away, Miss Crawley would say, "'Come to my dressing-room, Becky, and let us abuse the company!' Which, between them, they did perfectly. Old Sir Huddleston wheezed at dinner. Sir Giles Wapshot slurped his soup, and her ladyship had a wink of the left eye, all of which Becky caricatured admirably. As for the Mrs. Wapshot's toilettes and Lady Fuddleston's famous yellow hat, Miss Sharp tore them to tatters to the infinite amusement of her audience. <laughs> My dear, you are a perfect find. Miss Crawley would say, I wish you could come to me in London, but I couldn't make a butt of you as I do of poor Briggs, my companion. You little sly creature, you are too clever. Isn't she, Firkin? Her maid, Firkin, who was dressing the very small remnant of hair on Miss Crawley's pate, flung up her head and said, I think Miss is very clever, with the most killing sarcastic air. After this, Miss Crawley ordered that Rawdon Crawley should lead her in to dinner every day, and that Becky should follow. "'We must sit together,' she said. "'We're the only three Christians in the county, my love.' 
in which case it must be confessed that religion was at a very low ebb in Hampshire. Miss Crawley was, as we have said, an ultra-liberal in opinions, and always expressed these in the most candid manner. "'What is birth, my dear?' she would say to Rebecca. "'Look at my brother Pitt. Look at the Huddlestons. Look at poor Butte. Is any of them equal to you in intelligence or breeding? You, my love, are a little jewel. You have more brains than half the shire.' I consider you, my love, as my equal in every respect. And will you put some coals on the fire, my dear, and alter this dress of mine? You who can do it so well. So this old philanthropist used to make Becky run errands, do her sewing, and read her to sleep with French novels every night. At this time, as some older readers may recollect, the genteel world had been thrown into excitement by two events. Ensign Shafton had run away with Lady Barbara Fitzurse, and poor Vere Vane, a gentleman who had a most respectable character and numerous children, suddenly and outrageously left his home for the sake of Mrs. Rougemont, the actress, who was sixty-five. "'I adore impudent matches,' Miss Crawley said. "'What I like best is for a nobleman to marry a miller's daughter, as Lord Flowerdale did. It makes all the women so angry. <laughs> I wish some great man would run away with you, my dear. I'm sure you're pretty enough.' "'Oh, it would be delightful,' Rebecca said. "'And what I like next best is for a poor fellow to run away with a rich girl. I have set my heart on Rawdon running away with someone.' "'A rich someone or a poor someone?' "'Oh, why, you goose! "'Rawdon has not a shilling but what I give him. "'He must repair his fortunes and succeed in the world.' "'Is he very clever?' Rebecca asked. Oh, "'Clever, my love! <laughs> "'Not an idea in the world beyond his horses "'and his regiment and his hunting. "'But he must succeed.' He's so delightfully wicked. Don't you know, he has shot an injured father through the hat. He's adored in his regiment, and all the young men at the cocoa tree swear by him. When Miss Rebecca Sharp wrote to her beloved Amelia about the little ball at Queen's Crawley, and how Captain Crawley had first distinguished her, she did not, strange to say, give an altogether accurate account. The captain had distinguished her a great number of times before. He had met her in a dozen walks and fifty corridors. He had hung over her piano twenty times of an evening. My lady was now upstairs being ill, and nobody heeded her, as Miss Sharp sang. He had written her notes, but when he put the first note into the pages of the song she was singing— the little governess, rising and looking him steadily in the face, took up the missive daintily and popped it into the fire. Making him a low curtsy, she went back to her place and began to sing away again more merrily than ever. "'What's that?' said Miss Crawley, interrupted in her afternoon doze by the stoppage of the music. "'It's a false note,' Miss Sharp said with a laugh and Rawdon Crawley fumed with rage and mortification. Yet Mrs. Butte Crawley was not jealous, but welcomed the young lady to the rectory, 
and not only her, but Rawdon Crawley, her husband's rival for the old maid's fortune. They became very fond of each other's society, Mrs. Bute Crawley and Rawdon. He gave up hunting. His great pleasure was to stroll over to Crawley Parsonage, where Miss Crawley came too, and as their mamma was ill, the children with Miss Sharp. In the evening, some of them would walk back together. Not Miss Crawley, she preferred her carriage, but the walk over the rectory fields, and in at the little wicker gate, and up the checkered avenue in the moonlight, was charming to two such lovers of the picturesque as the captain and Rebecca. Oh, those stars, Miss Rebecca would say, turning her green eyes up toward them. I feel myself almost a spirit when I gaze upon them. Oh, uh, gad, yes, yes, so do I, exactly, Miss Sharp, <laughs> the other replied. You don't mind my cigar, do you? Miss Sharp loved the smell of a cigar, and she just tasted one, too, in the prettiest way possible, and gave a little puff and a little scream and a little giggle and restored it to the captain, who twirled his moustache and, and puffed it into a red blaze, swearing, Jove, oh, gad, it's the finest cigar I ever smoked. For his intellect and conversation were alike as became a heavy young dragoon. Old Sir Pitt, who was talking to John Horrocks, espied the pair from his study window, and with dreadful oaths swore that if it wasn't for Miss Crawley, he'd take Rodden and Bundlin out of doors like the rogue he was. He's a badden, sure enough, Mr. Horrocks remarked, but I think Miss Sharp's a match for him, Sir Pitt. And so in truth she was, for father and son too. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.